0: good morning morning. morning. i invite you to turn to james chapter 3 and i'm going to read james chapter 3 verse 13 uh, to chapter 4 verse 10. and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of God, and it is for our good. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would spare us from ever devolving to this level of of quarreling and fighting and open hostility. I pray that you would cause us even this morning to take heed to ourselves and our own attitudes and desires that if, if left unchecked, would lead to disorder and every vile practice father we pray that you would administer grace to our hearts this morning in jesus name amen well i i want to ask you uh, a favor this morning and that favor really this is a good this is a good uh, practice for hearing all sermons but I think it's especially important in hearing this particular sermon, is to really hear and process this sermon in terms of what, it, what is the Lord saying to you about you? Because in a sermon like this, which I will admit <clears throat> uh, may be uncomfortable to hear, um... It's it's going to be it's going to be easy uh, in your mind in your heart or mind to have uh, if you're in conflict with anyone to have accusatory fingers going that direction like they you know they need to hear they need to hear this sermon <laughs> well they probably do but 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 you you and me we we need we need to hear this sermon we need to reckon with this text for ourselves personally see we're going through different peacemaking tactics. For preserving and promoting peace within the body of Christ, and the previous three weeks, the focus has really been on uh, treating others, seeing others graciously, whether that is forbearing or whether that's dealing with with, with conflict head-on by speaking directly to the person and seeking reconciliation and forgiveness, or on the flip side, not speaking negatively about uh, people with whom you are in conflict. Um, but so the, f- the focus was very, very relationally in terms of how we're, how we're treating and regarding and speaking about uh, other people. But really, the peacemaking tactic that we're going to be looking at this morning is to take a good look in the mirror. In other words, when you're, when you're having conflict... Um, Honestly, evaluate your own motivations and see if there be in you any 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 sinful desires or selfish motivations that that you need to deal with. Um, I found uh, Robert Plummer's comment on James chapter four, verses one to twelve really helpful. He said, and I quote, "James teaches us not to point fingers at others, but rather, to ask God to lay bare our own hearts. When we experience conflict, we should pray, oh God, in what ways is sin in my heart contributing to this conflict? Where is my pride, anger, and defensiveness on display? In other words, take a good look in the mirror and be serious about identifying any any potential logs that are in your own eye. The the 17th century theologian John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And what is true individually is also true congregationally. We, We must be a body of many members that are killing our sins, otherwise our sins will be killing us. Now before we take a close look at the passage I read at the beginning, I want you to see an important theme that unfolds in the book of James. Sometimes church-going people, and we're church-going people, sometimes church-going people like us are not honest about the degree to which sin often thrives in religious settings. Of course, sin thrives in all settings where there are human beings (laughs) but religious settings pose a greater challenge because they are often a breeding ground for hypocrisy and deception we can fool ourselves into thinking that simply because we have learned god talk bible talk faith talk ministry talk that therefore we're okay but what often happens is that, that we, we learn the talk, and we learn how to keep up appearances, and we, we learn how to, how, to, how to play the game, while the reality of our hearts and lives is actually sometimes really disconnected from what we claim for ourselves. And so there's this disconnect between what we claim and how we live. And James is dealing with this head-on throughout the entire letter, in, in, including our passage. But ju- just—I'm not going to read up. These, I'm not going to uh, read these scripture references. But I just want you to think about these disconnects that you'll recognize if you're familiar with the book of James. It is—it is possible to ask God for wisdom, and to doubt that He will give it to you. James. Chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. And James says that petitioning God for help while disbelieving his willingness to help you reveals a tumultuous heart. It is possible to be a hearer of God's word and not be a doer of God's word. James 1, 22 to 25. It's possible to be religious and to have no control over your tongue. James 1, 26. It's possible to be religious and to have no concern for orphans and widows. James 1.27 and numerous Old and New Testament passages. It is possible to be religious and yet to be stained by worldliness. James 1.27 and numerous Old and New Testament passages. It's possible to gather together in the name of Jesus to worship the triune God and yet to favor the well-dressed rich people and to look down upon the poorly dressed poor people who are actually rich in faith. James 2, 1-7. It's possible to claim to have faith and yet refuse to show mercy. James 2, 8-17. It's possible to have some form of faith that doesn't actually work. Faith without works is dead. James two fourteen to 26 It's possible to bless the Lord with our words and yet to curse our neighbors who are made in the image of God, to curse them with our words, James 3, verses 9 to 12. And, and James says, that's right before our passage, by the way, and then right after our passage in James four eleven, James says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. the, The quarrels and fights of James 4, verses 1 and 2 take place largely through edgy words that give vent to our unruly desires. And this exposes yet one more disconnect that can exist among those who profess Christ. It is possible to be very religious within a Christian context and to be very contentious at the same time. James 4, 1 and 2. When James writes what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, remember that he is not writing to politicians. He's not writing to company executives or members of a sports team. James is writing to Christians who are assembling together as a church community. It's possible for Christians to get so hot-headed or so preoccupied with their own agenda that they would rather put away their fellow Christian than to put away their sin. So these are all, these are all the possible disconnects in James chapters 1 through 4. And to have these disconnects is what James calls double minded to be two-souled, to be double-minded. James 1.8 and James 4.8. You speak one way, but you feel and act a different way. You claim one thing, but your conduct is just the opposite. You profess godliness, but your everyday practice is ungodly. And one of the great dangers in all of this is the the distinct possibility of self-deception. We can think that our professed God talk is good enough and yet be totally blind to our bankrupt condition. And keeping in mind James, uh, James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, if we are teaching people to be hearers of the word, but we are not teaching people to be doers of the word, then all we are doing is we're not making disciples. We're making self-deceived people who think that it's enough to hear the word. Okay. Preaching a sermon series about preserving and promoting true peace within the body of Christ is no substitute for taking concrete steps to preserve and promote peace within the body of Christ. But the, 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 the teaching is essential, but the teaching without implementation is ultimately worthless. Worthless. So one of the great burdens of the book of James is to to encourage professing believers like us to take a good look in the mirror, to own up to any disconnects that exist in our lives between what we claim to believe and how we actually live, and to humble ourselves under the Lord and listen to his word and let his word transform our hearts into wholehearted disciples. So... In terms of our passage now, in James chapter uh, 3, verses 13 to 18, James sets forth the only two alternatives, true heavenly wisdom or diabolical folly. And these verses give us God's standard for our character and conduct. And then in James chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, James confronts his hearers with their diabolical attitudes. They have violated God's standard. And then in James chapter 4, verses 6 to 10, James summons these wayward believers to repentance. God's people are urged to return to him and to his standard with the promise that an abundance of grace will be poured out upon them. And remember, remember this. I said that this sermon will probably be uncomfortable, but remember that this this sermon flowing out of this text, this text is from the one whom we just referred to as our gentle shepherd. Our gentle and wise shepherd sometimes gives us hard words because he wants to humble us under his mighty hand and pour out an abundance of grace upon us. So remember, remember that. So let's look at God's standard for our character and conduct in, at the end of James chapter 3. Notice right off the bat that the test of whether or not you are wise, whether or not you have understanding, is how you conduct yourself in the presence of other people. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show you his theological library. Let him show you the amount of Bible knowledge that he has stored away in his brain. Let him, let him show you his vast ministry experience. Let him show you how smart and resourceful he is. No, none of that. Of course, sound doctrine is it's, it's essential to building sound disciples, but the test of spiritual maturity is not in your ability to recount doctrinal data, but rather in your ability to humbly obey the Lord and relate to others with love and kindness. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Um, how, how does a wise person then demonstrate his wisdom? Well, if you think about the, the quarrels and conflicts of chapter 4, one of the ways that a truly wise person demonstrates his wisdom is through silence. Silence. Doesn't it say in Proverbs 17:27 that whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding? Other people rush into a fool's conflict and get their mouth a running. A wise man keeps his feet firmly planted and carefully considers his steps and words. Another way that a truly wise person demonstrates his wisdom is through listening. Listening well if one gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame Proverbs 18:13 He hears in order to understand and he also listens to advice The way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man listens to to advice Proverbs 12:15 The truly wise man is not impressed with himself doesn't run over other people doesn't angrily force upon others the outcome that he desires the word meekness shows up in verse 13, and it also shows up in James 1.21. And this is the same word that is rendered gentleness in Ephesians 4.2, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Look at, t- turn back to James 1.19-21 for a moment. <clears throat> know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to speak to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Short tempered, impulsive, angry speech is not the pathway to righteousness. The harvest of righteousness, James 3.18, doesn't grow on the tree of selfish attitudes, however religious or legalistic or self-righteous those attitudes might feel. Instead, there must be a meekness, a a gentleness, a, a humble receptivity to the word of God which transforms us from the inside out. And then that word which transforms us from the inside out leads us into that same attitude of meekness and gentleness in terms of how we relate to other people. James 3.13, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so the bottom line is that the truly wise person is not full of himself. He's not preoccupied with his own advantage. He's not fixated on his own perspective. Whether, whether works of merciful action or words of grace and kindness, the wise person is a meek person who desires to serve others for Jesus' sake. Now, in verses 14 to 16, James gives us the dark alternative to true wisdom. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. In in these verses, by the way, James is basically giving us the nature, the source, and the result of you could you, you could call it pseudo wisdom. You could call it false wisdom. You could call it devilish wisdom, or I, you could call it diabolical folly. But the, the 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 nature of this diabolical folly is bitter, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It is selfish, self-absorbed, self-willed. You are ruled by your own desires, and thus you have a sharp, pointy. Acidic attitude toward other people. You, you will form a faction with people who agree with you, and you will adopt a negative or adversarial stance toward people who disagree with you, or, or toward people who have something that you covet. The word translated bitter in verse fourteen is the same word that is translated salt. I don't know why they translated it salt. Well, I, I do know why they I do know why they did. But um, verse eleven. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? That, that word that they translated salt, it's bitter. In other words, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and bitter water? This, this bitter jealousy is impure, polluted, and only suitable for spitting out. Those who have this bitter jealousy and selfish ambition are apt to boast... For the unbridled mouth likes to boast great things, James 3, 5. But James says that such people must not boast and be false to the truth. Remember, James is speaking to religious people in a Christian context. And self-absorbed people would boast of how self-righteous they are, of how insightful they are, of how clever they are, of how wise and understanding they are. But and, and in the name of piety and wisdom, they glorify their own opinions and the people who are willing to coalesce with them around their opinions, and they antagonize or avoid others within the body. And such people should learn to honor the truth by humbly acknowledging their sin, by humbly acknowledging their selfish attitudes and not being false to the truth by exalting their own selfish attitudes under the cloak of piety. Now, the source of this self-absorbed diabolical folly is discussed in verse 15. Actually, verse 15 begins by telling us where this false wisdom is not from. Where is it not from? It's not from heaven. It's not from the kingdom of of heaven. It's not from the kingdom above. Um, Instead, where are these selfish attitudes from? They're from the world, the flesh, and the devil. You're probably familiar with those three formulations. James deploys the adjective earthly, the the, the here and now of this present fallen sinful world, not from heaven above. Unspiritual, corresponding to our, our fleshly, sensual, animal nature, not, not holy desires from a new redeemed heart and demonic, corresponding to what demons do, not what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives. The devil and his demons stir up fleshly desires to get yourself a larger share of this present world at other people's expense. To get what other people have, to see to it that you increase and others decrease. This is just the opposite of the call of love upon our lives. The fact that we are gathering together on a Sunday morning in a sanctuary with an open Bible does not guarantee that the world, the flesh, and the devil are not working overtime to trip us up in all kinds of ways. We must be on our guard. Now, the result of this self-absorbed diabolical folly is identified in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. It cannot be otherwise. Our habitual attitudes yield habitual actions and habitual ways of relating to each other. And habitual ways of action and habitual ways of relating to each other build culture. It's just the way it works. Jealousy and selfish ambition are unstable attitudes that breed social instability, disorder, infighting, backbiting, factions, jockeying for position, backroom deals, shameful efforts to bring other people down. Furthermore, when these fleshly attitudes are in the driver's seat, these fleshly attitudes, given enough time, will generate every Vile practice, every form of sin. It could be slander, sabotage, abuse of, abuse of power, resistance to authority, embezzlement, adultery, manipulation, blackmail. Corporately, worship turns into entertainment, the church's teaching devolves into Heresies, pastoral leadership turns into a cult of personality. Bible studies turn into group therapy sessions. Ministry undergirded by prayer turns into professional marketing. Some of you have no idea how bad it can get in church settings. May you continue to be blessed. with with your ignorance. Uh, And I I mean that sincerely. Uh, Some of you, though, some of you, sadly, know how bad it can get. We expect pagans in Hollywood to be earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But when professing Christians are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic, the stench is unbearable. We are not called to manage the downstream effects of disorder and chaos and all that manifestation, but rather we're to to deal with the upstream attitudes that that are giving rise to all of those problems. Remember, there's a better way, going on to verses 17 and 18, there's a better way. The characteristics of heavenly wisdom are identified in verse 17. It all starts with purity. The godly heart is not a hotbed of toxic emotion. It is not polluted by double-mindedness or by hypocrisy. It is clean. It is unstained by the world, James 1.27. It's holy in its motivation and outlook. It's not a polluted spirit but pure all the way down and all the way across. It's not destabilized by jealousy and selfish ambition. It is wholehearted in its devotion to the Lord and in its love for, for the brethren. This foundational purity generates manifold graciousness when it comes to relating to other people within the church. Heavenly wisdom is peaceable. Always inclined to keep and cultivate Peaceful relations with your brothers and sisters. Heavenly wisdom is gentle, meek, mild-mannered, fair-minded, disarming. Heavenly wisdom is open to reason. When it comes to a thousand practical and interpersonal matters, your mind is not already made up. But instead, you're willing to listen, to consider, to understand, to be persuaded. You're able to be approached. You're able to be entreated. You're able to be reasoned with. You're able to change your mind. You don't shut down conversation, but rather welcome it for the mutual benefit of all. Heavenly wisdom is also full of mercy and good fruits. This compassion kindness and generosity shows up in all kinds of practical ways as we serve and help one another heavenly wisdom is also impartial and sincere this is so important just purity impartiality some of your translations might say unwavering sincere these words point to the beauty of integrity The word translated impartial conveys the idea of being unambiguous, undivided, wholehearted. The quality of sincerity means no hypocrisy, no play acting, no putting on a mask, no duplicity. Just think about this. If you are are impartial and sincere, then you exhibit honest consistency in all of your dealings and conversations. You don't speak out of both sides of your mouth you don't play both sides. You're not a chameleon who changes your colors based on who you're with. You don't you don't praise Deacon Jones when you're with people who like Deacon Jones and you don't criticize Deacon Jones when you're with people who don't like Deacon Jones. You don't get pressured into saying what other people want you to say. You're not a perpetual doubter or second-guesser. You know what you believe and you speak honestly and consistently across the whole range of your conversations and interactions. You don't play favorites. And you aren't swayed by external appearances. But you treat everyone, everyone, with the same peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and merciful disposition. You represent yourself honestly, you tell the truth, And you live before the audience of one and don't change your tune within different subgroups of the church. Such comprehensive integrity may be uncommon, but it is beautiful when it shows up in a faithful man or a faithful woman. Of course, all of these characteristics belong together. Like this is a package deal, okay? It's possible to be sincerely cruel, right? Authentically and honestly cruel. There's nothing virtuous about that. All, all, all of these qualities are meant to belong together as a package deal that typify the way that we relate one to another. And just as instability and vileness grow in the soil of selfish attitudes, what grows in a soil of what grows in the soil of heavenly wisdom? A harvest. Of righteousness. Verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Those who give vent to their jealousy and selfish ambition are sowing disorder and chaos, but those who are diligently seeking to make peace are show, are, and showing kindness, they are sowing a harvest of righteousness. So that's the standard. Now, shifting over to chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, James proceeds to confront and reprove his hearers for failing to meet God's standard. Instead of being a pure spring with peaceable attitudes, far too many of his hearers uh, had become a polluted spring full of bitter attitudes which is showing up in quarrels and fights. How does chapter 4 begin? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions or pleasures are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, as we contemplate these words, remember that James is addressing their relationships with one another as a church family. He's not speaking primarily about what's going on at home or what's going on in the workplace. I mean, sh- sh- sure, it's, it's relevant there, but, but he's speaking primarily in terms of what's going on among God's people in terms of their relationships with each other. James is referring to what is happening when they gather together. Worship services, Bible studies, leadership meetings, church business meetings, ministry events, fellowship groups, informal get-togethers, casual conversations, and what is happening is not good. The the individual churchgoers are being governed by their passions and pleasures, by their desires and selfish agendas. They're full of covetousness. They want what they want. They want what other people have. They want things to go their own way, and they are determined to get the outcome they desire. Regarding verse 2, Robert Plummer comments, James paints a picture of people driven by covetous desires for other people's, other others' belongings, status, relationships, or influence. And this this hodgepodge of selfish desires is resulting in open conflict, arguing, fighting, quarreling, and the ability of such people to be contentious about the color of the new carpet is just the tip of the iceberg. These people will fight over budgets, ministries, decisions, personnel, building usage, lack of attention to their pet issues, and a whole host of secondary issues. Having honest and open to reason discussions would be just fine. In fact, not only would it be just fine, such discussions are necessary. It's necessary to have peaceable, constructive discussions with one another about difficult issues. Nothing wrong with that. We we need to do that in a spirit of peace and mutual goodwill. The purpose of James 4, 1 and 2 and the purpose of this sermon is not to shut down conversation. Rather, the purpose is to kill sin so that destructive conversation and destructive interactions and destructive maneuvers aren't taking place. For what is envisioned here is tooth and nail fighting. These people want certain ministries killed. If I can't be part of it, let it die. This is the attitude that says, if this ministry won't succeed under my leadership for my glory, well, then I I really would like it to fail under your leadership to your shame. Now, it gets worse. These churchgoers with toxic attitudes want certain people gone don't miss that phrase. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Now, I do think that James is speaking with hyperbole, with with intentional exaggeration, in order to make a point. But the point is a heavy one, okay? Just think this out. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us that anger, unjust anger toward our brothers and sisters is tantamount to murder. And of course, we're all familiar with with the practical effect of slander, which is why uh, the phrase character assassination exists. Right? We assassinate people's character. Many who would never assassinate someone else with a gun will nevertheless do so with their tongue. And for a third thing, when selfish passions are unchecked and come into open hostility with your brothers and sisters, then what you really want, unless you repent, what you really want is for that person to just be gone. And if, if your vision for the future of the church is for certain people not to be here, you should, can, you should receive James 4, uh, verses 1 through 10, as an invitation to repentance. It, if it were to be revealed that someone were... Uh, deeply entrenched in serious sin, and after repeated exhortations for them to leave their sin, they refuse to do so, then in that case, it would be right to remove them from the fellowship, obviously not killing them, but excommunicating them, removing them from the family of believers. But short of that, it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, bitter jealousy, and selfish ambition that wants Deacon Jones or Sister Sue or Brother Tony to be gone. <clears throat> now the obvious problem is that these Christian people are waging war in the wrong direction, right? They're fighting against each other, which is the very thing they ought not be doing. It's, it's, it's going to result in their biting devouring and consuming each other, which is what Paul says in Galatians 5.15. These dear Christian people ought to be fighting, of course, but each one ought to be fighting against his or her own sin. If they would take all of that energy that they are currently, challenge, uh, they're currently using that energy to fight each other, if they would take that energy and channel it to fight their sin, that would make a world of difference. Don't put away each other instead put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness James 1:21 don't put away your brothers and sisters instead put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander 1 Peter 2:1 don't put one another to death even in your imagination instead Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3.5. Strike blows against your own sin, not against your fellow believer. Fight the right fight with humble dependence upon the Lord instead of rushing into a fight to insist on your own way, be a man or woman who prays, right? Right? You do not have because you do not ask, verse 3. Prayer is not a a manipulative technique to to force God's hand. Uh, We must not ask wrongly to spend it on our passions, verse 3. Prayer is an expression of trusting God. Humbly asking, patiently waiting, always trusting, being prayerful, patient and peaceable people is how we walk in friendship with the Lord. The alternative, demanding, impatient, quarrelsome, means that we are operating with a worldly mindset that turns us into God's enemies, into adulterous people who have abandoned our first love. And when we have descended to such a low place, or if we realize that we are heading that way, then we must turn back to our gentle shepherd. And that, and that leads us to the, the conclusion to our passage in verses 5 to 10. To such people who are falling far short of God's standard of heavenly wisdom and who are fighting each other instead of fighting their sin, James issues a clear call to repentance. This call to repentance flows out of the fact that God himself yearns for the faithfulness of his people, There in verse 5, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Just as a good-hearted husband desires the the faithfulness and the faithful love of his wife, so God Almighty has has a, a heart that yearns for his people to be faithful and true and devoted to him. And unlike petty lords who angrily dismiss their unfaithful subjects. God stands ready to pour forth an abundance of grace upon his unfaithful people who turn back to him in humble repentance. And let that truth sink in in verse six. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Of course, uh, got to back up here. just thinking about this passage and also thinking of what I read from James 1, 19 to 21, we easily get deceived into thinking that the only way to get positive change is to be, is to be, is to be proud and angry because we believe that the proud and angry get results, right? It works. But that's deception. And and it ultimately only leads to opposition from God himself. If we remain proud and self-absorbed, then God will most certainly oppose us. But if we would wake up and realize that it is not good for us, it's not good for me, it's not good for you, it's not good for us to have God opposed to us. That sounds like a losing proposition. So then we need to humbly return to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. We believe that God has an abundance of grace, for his messed up people. We believe that the Lord Jesus Christ died and paid it all for his messed up people. We believe that returning home to the Father who sought us and to the Lord who bought us and to the Holy Spirit who taught us and to the grace that once caught us is that which is truly good and infinitely better than getting reduced down to our passionate quarrels, one against another. And so believing these things, we turn back to the Lord. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Verse 7, repentance begins with the humble recognition that I must do life God's way. I must do relationships God's way. I must deal with conflict God's way according to his heavenly wisdom then verse also verse 7 resist the devil and he will flee from you selfish attitudes are not niceties to play around in they are the devil's workshop the devil's effort to shape you according to the demonic image. And you should be alarmed that the stakes are so high and and, and quit accommodating those selfish desires that arise in your heart. Resist the devil's overtures, the devil's influences, the devil's lies. Remember that unaddressed anger opens the door and gives an opportunity to the devil. So be utterly committed to closing all such doors if you are submitted to God, then your effort to resist the devil will succeed. He will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Repentance is not a technique to master. It's not a list of bullet points to check off. It's a relationship to be restored. Draw near to God through scripture. Draw near to God in prayer. Draw near to God in worship. Draw near to God in fervent conversation with other people who are seeking to draw near to God. The God of grace will draw near to you if you draw near to Him. Now, drawing near to God is not like going to the movie theater and eating popcorn while you watch a comedy on the big screen. You've got guilt on your hands and gunk in your heart. We all do, to one degree or another. So deal with it. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, verse 8. I think this may be the only time in the New Testament when the saints are actually referred to by the noun sinners. So urgent is the call to repentance. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Wash your hands in the water of the word. And then with those word-washed hands... Begin to use your clean hands to do good, to make amends, to build up, to write notes of encouragement, to give a hearty handshake or a warm hug. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Also, verse 8, the ultimate change that must take place must take place in our heart. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 14, that, that bitter jealousy and selfish ambition is located in our hearts, and it's from our hearts where such attitudes must be removed. Purify your heart, your mind, and your conscience by washing them in the blood of Calvary's lamb. Let the love of Christ melt your heart until it is wholehearted and single-minded in service to the Lord. That's that's what the Lord desires. It says in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, for for the, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Just think about that. Someone for your sake, died and was raised so that you would no longer live for you, but so that you would live for Christ alone. As you are experiencing this spiritual renewal, it will not feel like superficial excitement. Verse 9, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's a place to feel really low and abased in the presence of god as we're repenting of our sin but that's not the end game the lord gives grace in answer to the gloom mercy in answer to the mourning, comfort in answer to the weeping and joy in answer to the misery so press on and press through the bottom line is in verse 10 humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you everyone in here wants to be exalted lifted up strengthened and vindicated there's nothing wrong with that basic desire the problem is that the jealous selfishly ambitious and quarrelsome people attempt to assert and exalt themselves the mind gets deceived into thinking that fighting is the best way to get myself exalted and my agenda enthroned. But it is not so. Jesus taught us that those who exalt themselves will be humiliated. You can count on it. But those who humble themselves before the Lord and put themselves at his disposal and entrust themselves to his mercy and trust him to work it out in his own good time, such one's Such ones will be exalted in the only way that truly matters. The God of all grace will exalt you. The King of glory will lift you up. The Lord of heaven's armies will strengthen you. And the judge of all the earth will vindicate you. And this calls us to patient endurance. Many choose the companionship of the devil, the friendship of the world, and the indulgence of their own fleshly passions because frankly they want quicker results relationships are broken people are cut down churches are splintered souls are threatened with infinite loss and the highway to hell is packed tight all because people want quicker results which soon enough will take the shape of disorder in every vile practice But the only good result is that harvest of righteousness at the end of chapter 3. And that result only comes through genuine repentance and transformation in which humble sinners receive God's grace grace that cleanses, grace that purifies, grace that exalts, grace that utterly changes the metrics in all of our relationships with one another. Let's not settle for anything less let's pray father i thank you that you speak directly to the common temptations of all of our hearts wherever we might be um, on the spectrum of our spiritual maturity in our present walk with you There is abundant grace for all who would turn to you in genuine faith. And so, Father, I pray that you would would do whatever work you need to do in each one of our hearts. Help us to be so overwhelmed by the grace of God that we can look honestly in the mirror and let the grace of God touch that brokenness, that darkness, that desperateness until we are transformed and strengthened in our walk with you.